Good morning, Ghost Soldier. Thank you for joining the Paranormal Investigator Division of Renegade Files. This loose affiliation of ragamuffin rebels takes on paranormal events, unsolved mysteries, and conspiracy culture. I'm your CO, Lex Gordon, coming to you across the airwaves directly from the Jungle Villa Outpost, deep in the uncharted tropics. And before we begin, allow me to correct a small mistake I made in the previous episode's introduction. You may have caught it when I referred to that as episode 35. It was obviously episode 48. This now being Renegade Files episode 49, Haunted Objects, Ghost Files Part 2. Back in May of 2022, we had a blast delving into the spooky realms of some of the most haunted inns around when we did episode 22, Haunted Hotels, which was part one of our Ghost Files series. Now it's time to revisit the spooky realms again and look into one of the most unsettling and unexplained phenomena in the world. In this, part two of our Ghost File series, as we explore the subject of haunted objects. This is the stuff of horror movie puppets, imaginary friends gone wrong, cursed idols, and possessed paintings. What causes bad luck to follow certain objects, or negative vibes to surround a seemingly innocent toy? Do malevolent spirits attach themselves to things in much the same ways as they seem to linger in certain places? Are some of the most famous haunted items pure and genuine possessions? Can a painting come to life? And was it a bad idea to accept that hand-sewn doll given as a present from the jilted governess who turned out to be a voodoo priestess? In this episode, we'll look into some of the most haunted objects known to the world of high strangeness. Some are famous in these circles, and some others are relatively unknown, but all of them rank high on the haunt scale. We'll also examine a few theories as to exactly what might be going on here, hysteria, folklore, or pure poltergeist intrusion. If you would like to help support Renegade Files, then I encourage you to join the Renegade Files Agency, the RFA. Becoming an RFA agent is a great way to support these investigations and help keep this podcast ad-free. RFA agents benefit by getting exclusive perks like the dark intel files for each episode, episode transcripts, bonus episodes, the RFA weird internet finds, behind-the-scenes content from the Jungle Villa Outpost, MP3s of the relaxing episode background music, and more. You can get a free Renegade Files t-shirt, shout-outs on the episodes, and you can try all of this for free for a full week. Just tap the link to Patreon in the show notes, or visit patreon.com slash renegadefiles and become an RFA agent today. I'll see you in there. And thank you to all of you who are agents already. You make the show work. The Dark Mirror The story of the Dark Mirror comes to us from one of my favorite new websites, weekinweird.com, which is a treat of paranormal reports and information. And from the first glance, I knew I had found a cool place online. It's definitely a polished website, and it's not the grungy underground that I'm kind of used to, but it's still cool. Weekend Weird was started in 2008 by Greg and Dana Newkirk, self-described professional weirdos investigating the unexplained by engaging the strange. They are also the hosts of Greg and Dana's Haunted Objects podcast, over the years, this husband and wife team have investigated hundreds of paranormal cases, artifacts, sightings, and claims. And along the way, they have built a sizable collection of haunted and weird objects, and they turned that into a traveling museum, which they take to conferences and festivals, and they never charge any money for people to see their collection. They just do it for the fun of it, and that's also cool. So according to Greg, in June of 2015, the Weekend Weird crew was approached by a woman whose mother had purchased a black scrying mirror at a psychic festival. 
The mirror was about 12 inches square and set into a carved wooden frame. As soon as the mom got the mirror home, things started to get strange, to say the least. Now, scrying is the art of gazing into an object like a crystal ball or a pool of water in order to shift your focus away from the world of division and identification with individual forms and into the infinite for the purposes of seeing the future, speaking with spirits, or performing magic in the highest sense of that word. One scrying tool is a black mirror, which is exactly what it sounds like and this is what the girl's mom had bought at the fair. The girl, whom the article calls Sarah, not her real name, said that after buying the dark mirror, her mother became solitary, confined in her home, and was obsessed with using the mirror for divination to what Sarah felt was an unhealthy degree. Her mother rarely answered the phone or returned Sarah's messages, and in the few times she was able to reach her, her mother was distant, unresponsive, and all of her stories or concerns were filled with doom, danger, and apprehension. Finally, Sarah visited her mom and demanded to see the mirror for herself. Her mother reluctantly led her down the hallway and opened the closet door. Inside the closet, the small mirror sat on a shelf, covered with a frayed piece of black fabric. When Sarah asked why the mirror was locked away in the closet and covered, the mother began to cry and all she would say was that the mirror was evil. Sarah took the mirror, still wrapped in the cloth, closed it into a box, and took it home. Immediately, her mother's outlook improved and she returned to her former cheerful self. Sarah donated the mirror to Greg and Dana's traveling museum of the paranormal and the occult, and for some time, it resided in the collection without incident, although few people paid it any mind. Then, on a summer morning, the curators began organizing the collection for transport to the Perryville Battlefield to appear at an event with Nick Groff from Ghost Adventures. At these events, people can hold or examine any of the objects in the collection as long as they agree to do so at their own risk. One such woman found herself attracted to the dark mirror. She took up the mirror, held it at arm's length, gazed deeply into the glossy surface for a mere 30 seconds before her expression abruptly changed from skeptical curiosity to outright horror. She sprang to put the mirror back face down on the table. She said that she had seen her own corpse decomposing and looking back at her. She then said she had to go somewhere alone to say a prayer, and she hastily departed. This occurrence generated even more interest from the growing crowd at the event, and more and more people came forward to have a look for themselves. Many saw nothing. But a majority reported seeing distorted figures, fantastically warped faces, and feelings or images of dread and destruction. One woman pressed her palm flat down on the dark mirror surface and was stunned to see her handprint remain, like fog, for long minutes after removing her own hand. She spent a full two hours polishing and cleaning the mirror surface trying to remove her ghostly handprint. It refused to fade away. Suddenly, behind or within the foggy handprint, the woman saw a shadowy shape, and although she had long since decided she wanted nothing to do with the artifact as soon as she could get her handprint from it, she was nonetheless compelled to look and see what the figure in the glass was. She turned the mirror at various angles and the object she was seeing grew clearer. Suddenly there it was, framed by her own handprint the figure of her own dead body rancid and ruined, and the dead eyes of her own corpse stared back at her. She screamed at the mirror. She said she would smash it into a thousand pieces. With this threat, her ghostly handprint evaporated, and the mirror surface once again went pure black. 
With the mirror back home after the ghost adventures gathering, the owner, Greg Newkirk, found himself constantly drawn to the object. He would snap out of distant, trance-like pauses only to realize he had been staring at the dark mirror under its black veil on the table. At another event for the Penhurst Paranormal Association in Pennsylvania, one woman, a self-described skeptic, stared into the mirror, and although she never spoke while holding the object, she said that the mouth and her own reflection began to move, and her reflection spoke to her in a deep whisper. What the reflection told her, she refused to say. And this is one of the first instances of people seeing their living or moving self in the mirror, in another way than just their normal reflection. Others had similar experiences. And finally, a big burly man who had had enough of the nonsense grabbed the mirror and said it was nothing more than a piece of black glass and anyone saying otherwise was either crazy or a liar. He held the dark mirror out and stared into its glossy depth with an incredulous smirk. Suddenly the man jumped, turned and looked behind him, then looked back to the mirror. He froze. He slowly turned to look behind him again, then returned his gaze to the dark mirror. He dropped the object and backed away, cursing the entire time. He said that as he held the mirror, he saw his own reflection like normal and the room behind him as it appeared, just as he had expected. Nothing unusual. Then he said that he saw himself slowly walking toward him from behind, across the room, a direct and deliberate stride. He initially thought it was just someone who looked like him, but when he turned, no such figure was there. Each time he turned and looked, then looked back to the mirror, the image of himself was peering at him from behind his own reflection, slowly emerging over his own shoulder, leering, a blank yet judgmental stare. Others who have held the mirror have reported feeling electricity surging through their hands and arms. Some have experienced headaches, and others have complained of tasting blood. One woman said that as she held the mirror, she watched people milling around in the actually empty room behind her. Then, with the dark mirror back home, covered on a living room table, Greg and Dana woke for several days in a row to discover that the mirror had somehow shed its black fabric cover in the night. Greg, being a paranormal investigator, set up a motion-activated camera trained on the object to capture the veil coming off in the night, but the camera only malfunctioned, and the memory card seemed to erase itself every time. One morning they awoke to find their two cats staring into the uncovered mirror, and I guess that was the last straw. They wrapped the mirror in the black veil, tied it with a rosary, and locked it in a wooden case. Museum curators Greg and Dana are of the opinion that the dark mirror may have started out as a benign object, but that it may have absorbed and reflected the energies of, initially Sarah's mother, who could have projected into it her own fears of mortality and dread, and then the energies of hundreds of curious paranormal-minded seekers at the many festivals and haunted houses where they've displayed the mirror with their traveling museum also did the same. There is some precedent for situations like this. Houses are said to absorb the bad vibes of violent crimes committed within them, and many cultures over the centuries have deep beliefs about mirrors trapping souls, reflecting bad spirits, and being gateways to other dimensions or astral planes. You can still see the dark mirror if you catch Greg and Dana's traveling museum of the paranormal and the occult but they don't keep it on the living room table anymore. You can hear more stories about their collection and travels on Greg and Dana's Haunted Objects podcast. Next up, we have a haunted painting entitled The Hands Resist Him, painted by Bill Stoneham in 1972. This is a very unsettling image of two children. One, a blank staring self-portrait of the artist as a boy, standing next to a girl who is actually a black-eyed doll. The doll girl is holding something that could be an aerosol bottle with tentacles. 
the two kids stand in front of a black window filled with groping hands clawing from outside. Images of this painting and the other haunted objects in this episode can be seen by the RFA agents on Patreon, and anyone can jump in there and look for free for a whole week. So check it out through the link in the show notes, patreon.com slash renegadefiles, to see all of the pictures and images of things in this episode. The artist had sold the painting along with several others years ago, but in 2000 he got an email from a Michigan art gallery asking about the work. Stonehem had learned that his painting had been in one of the first ever viral eBay listings. When the painting had been auctioned from its initial bid of $199 and sold 30 days later for $1,050. This hardly seems impressive in today's world of people selling $75,000 jars of air from Taylor Swift concert front rows, but back then it was a big deal. This was also one of the first eBay listings for something haunted or allegedly haunted. I just searched eBay for haunted items there are over 12,000 things for sale. That listing was an intriguing story posted by the anonymous seller, and it described the couple who had initially discovered the painting in an abandoned brewery and had hung it in the bedroom of their four-year-old daughter. First of all, this is super weird. Unless your parents were Gomez and Morticia Adams, it would be very unusual to hang this totally creepy painting in a kid's bedroom. But I guess that's when the trouble started. The four-year-old girl began running into her parents' bedroom saying the children in the painting were coming to life, fighting in the painting, and even climbing out of the frame and moving around her bedroom in the middle of the night. She said that the doll in the painting had a gun, and she would point it at the little boy. The daughter was so insistent that the father installed, once again, a motion-detecting camera in the girl's room and focused it on the painting. One morning, they found that something had triggered the motion camera to snap a picture overnight, and when they looked at it, it looked like the girl in the painting had transformed into a real girl, so no longer a doll and that she was now indeed pointing a gun at the boy in the painting. And no, I couldn't find the picture. People began to feel sick, get headaches, and become tormented by visions of the children just from looking at the pictures of it on the eBay listing. The artist has a love-hate relationship with the painting now because it's one of those things that had plagued his career ever since it sold in the viral auction and was featured on a few news programs after doing so. Bill Stoneham, the artist, is a surreal painter who has sold many paintings, and according to him, The Hands Resist Him, is one of the least creepy paintings he's ever made. He jokes about the reactions people have to it, but he doesn't seem to be a sinister person at all. The Hands Resist Him has an interesting history even before the eBay sale. It was bought by a gallery owner from Stoneham when he was just 20 years old. It was actually sold to actor John Marley, who is the man who played film studio mogul Jack Waltz in The Godfather. No one knows how the painting ended up in the abandoned brewery. It's possible that the brewery bought it from Jack Waltz's estate sale, and then when the brewery closed, they just left the painting there. The person who won the original eBay auction still owns the painting, and he swears the kids in the painting have come out into the room on more than one occasion. The rights to the image have been sold to a writer who plans to write a movie script about the story surrounding it. The Dibbuk Box A Dibbuk, that's D-Y-B-B-U-K, is, according to Jewish mythology, the malicious lost spirit of a dead person. So, a ghost. According to legend, an anguished soul can sometimes refuse to go to the afterlife. In many cases, this is someone who clings so dearly to the material world that their spirit becomes trapped in some physical object, only to remain there until someone helps release it. The word dibuk comes from an ancient Hebrew word meaning to cling. The dibuk box is said to be the home of just such a spirit. 
So where did the box come from and what do we know about it? Sometime in the mid-1990s, an antique store owner named Kevin Manis purchased what he thought was a small wooden wine cabinet at an estate sale for a woman who had originally lived in Poland and who had reached an age of 103. The woman had left the box to her granddaughter, along with a warning to never open it, telling her it contained the spirit of a Dybbuk. The granddaughter relayed this story to the antiques dealer and included the warning to never open the box, but the man decided to buy the box anyway. After purchasing the item together with a few other pieces from the woman's daughter, Manis began to believe, inexplicably, that the box may have had sentimental value for the family, so he offered to return it, but the daughter refused and insisted that he take it away. Once back at his antiques shop, he found himself repeatedly drawn to the box. He decided to clean it, and it was at this point that he broke the only rule left by the old woman. He opened the box. Inside, he discovered a wine goblet, a small granite tile with the Hebrew word shalom carved into it, a dried rose, a candlestick, two 1920 pennies, and two locks of human hair tied with string. Manus dusted out the box, cleaned the outside, reclosed it, then left his showroom clerk to mind the shop while he ran some errands. When he returned, the clerk said that she had heard someone cursing loudly in a foreign language in the back room where the box was. When she went to see who it was, she saw no one there. But nonetheless, she watched in shock as light bulbs broke and furniture was tossed around the room, all amid a disembodied stream of angry foreign curses. Kevin rushed to the back room and found it ransacked with furniture and antiques strewn about the floor, and the focused, powerful scent of jasmine flowers hung at the center of the room. About this incident, Manis said, quote, When I got back to the shop, I went to investigate. I remember heading toward the back and walking into what I can only describe as a wall of scent. It smelled like jasmine flowers. You could take one more step and not smell a thing, and take a step backwards and be surrounded by it again. The shop clerk immediately resigned and left Manis to deal with both the mess and the haunted box. Then, in an equally strange turn of events, later that same day, the FBI arrived at the antique shop unannounced and for no reason known to Manus. The agents proceeded to search his shop, confiscate a few pieces of antique electronic equipment, then depart with no further explanation. After that, Manis sold the Dybbuk box to a few customers, but every time they would return it. Then he gave the Dybbuk box to a string of relatives and acquaintances as a gift. His mother, his sister, his girlfriend, his brother and his wife, each either refusing it outright or returning it quickly. Some said the box smelled of jasmine, and others said it smelled of far worse things and some said it gave them nightmares. People who had the box said that furniture would be tossed about their house just like at the antique shop. Others heard the disembodied curses hurled at them from the box. No one wanted the thing, so Manus took it back and stored it in his basement. What could go wrong? Almost immediately, he started smelling jasmine in various rooms of his house, and he started having potent nightmares. Once again, in his own words, he describes the dreams. Quote, I find myself walking with a friend, usually someone I know well and trust at some point in the dream. I find myself looking into the eyes of the person that I am with. It is then that I realize that there is something different, something evil looking back at me. At that point in my dream, the person I am with changes into what I can only describe as the most gruesome, demonic-looking hag that I have ever seen. This hag proceeds then to beat the living tar out of me." End quote. 
More frightening still is the fact that Manus would often awake from these dreams bearing scratches, scars, and bruises. He started to see shadowy figures crossing doorways or ducking around corners throughout his house, and guests would see these apparitions as well. Kevin Manis became so scared that he decided to sell the object to get rid of it, and once and for all, he posted the Dybbuk box for sale on eBay. The box was bought for $140, and the buyer had the same negative experiences, so he sold it to university museum curator and collector of religious paraphernalia, Jason Haxton of Kirksville, Missouri. Haxton had the object examined by an expert on Jewish artifacts named Rebecca Edery. Edery made the most startling discovery. It seems, according to her, that the box was not a wine cabinet at all, and that the two circular hoops and stands on the insides of each of the cabinet's doors were not for holding wine bottles, but were actually for holding scrolls. Edery determined the Dybbuk box to be a sacred relic for imprisoning a spirit. She says, quote, The two doors on the outside open up just like the Holy Ark, or Aaron Hakodesh, a receptacle for Torah scrolls, and I saw round metal hoops on the inside of the doors that would hold scrolls. This particular size is used when going to comfort the family of the deceased. This, the insertion of the spirit, was done deliberately, for a specific purpose. End quote. Haxton kept the box for some time, first having elaborate rituals performed upon the box to trap the spirit inside, then storing it in an acacia wooden box lined with 24 karat gold leaf to keep the dark energy inside where he stored the object in his den. Apparently, that was not good enough, so he eventually positioned that contraption within a military-grade shockproof container and buried it on his property. Eventually, star of the television show Ghost Adventures, Zach Baggins, purchased the Dybbuk box from Jason Haxton and added it to his collection of paranormal objects in his haunted museum in Las Vegas. It seems like haunted museums are pretty big with this crowd. However... Baggins will not just let anyone look at the box. Curious seekers must sign a waiver that releases Baggins from liability if anything bad happens to them while or immediately after viewing the box. As with any such haunted object, there are claims of fraud and hoax that extend all the way from antique shop owner Kevin Minnis all the way down to Baggins and including the Jewish relic expert but we may never know for sure. Robert the Doll Among those of us curious about or fascinated by haunted objects, Robert the Doll is somewhat of a celebrity. He is a haunted object A-lister, checking all the boxes, like countless stories of paranormal activity directly attributed to the doll over decades. Rumors of a voodoo priestess nanny who made or at least influenced the doll. And the blank, harmless, faded expression of an old doll, upon which we can read everything from profundity to possession. Robert the Doll is on permanent display in Key West, Florida at the Key West Art and Historical Society's Fort East Martello Museum. I personally know someone who used to work at the museum and will get into some of those first-hand experiences relayed to me by this witness who wishes to remain nameless. But first, some history about the doll. Now, since this doll has made the rounds of internet lore for quite some time, for the most official account, we'll look at the museum's website. This information comes from the Key West Art and Historical Society's website at kwahs.org. Robert the Doll is a one-of-a-kind, 40-inch tall, handmade doll made by the Steve Company of Germany in the late 1800s. It was purchased there by a traveler who brought the doll back to Key West and gave it to his grandson, Robert Eugene Otto, as a birthday gift. The boy named the doll Robert, which was his own first name, 
and he began to call himself Gene. He dressed his doll in the sailor suit that was one of his own favorite outfits to wear, took the doll everywhere, and began to tell his parents all of the many things that Robert could do. He could walk. He could disappear from the bed and show up in the closet. He could hear you. And he could speak. Eventually, the boy began to blame the doll for any trouble he got into, saying many times a day, it wasn't me, Robert did it. The parents became concerned when the boy continued to talk about the doll as if he were alive. They would find the boy in his room whispering to the doll and were once alarmed to hear the doll speaking back to Jean in a distant but deep voice. From there, things grew increasingly sinister as the parents would sometime awake to hear young Jean crying and rush to find him trapped on his bed and covered with furniture from the room. What happened here? The mother would ask, but all Jean would say was, Robert did it. And it wasn't only the boy and his parents who experienced unexplained activity surrounding Robert the doll. Once, a plumber who had been hired to make repairs around the auto home noticed the doll sitting in the window seat of the house's tall tower room, several stuffed animals in his own stuffed lap. The plumber had returned to his work in a room down the hallway when he heard what he thought was children laughing. He went back to the room where the doll was to see if anyone was there and was shocked to find that Robert the doll had moved from one side of the window to the other and the toys that had been in Robert's lap were now strewn across the floor toward the other side of the room as if the doll had thrown them. As Gene grew up, he kept the doll and eventually stored it in his home at 534 Eaton Street in Key West while he studied art in New York and Paris. He became a respected painter and author, and he married Annette Parker in Paris on May the 3rd, 1930, and the couple returned to the Otto family home in Key West to live. Once back home, and now married, Jean designed a room just for Robert in the attic, of course, complete with furniture, toys, and decorations all for the doll. His new wife, however, was not so thrilled with that use of the space and for the attention her husband was showing to this creepy old doll from his childhood, so she insisted that Jean lock Robert the doll away in a closet downstairs, which he did. But it seems that Robert the doll wasn't too happy about this arrangement and he would repeatedly escape and the homeowners would find him sitting in a chair facing out of an upstairs window where he could be seen by passers-by below. People walking by 534 Eaton Street would see the doll disappear and then reappear facing another direction. They claimed that he would follow them with his gaze as they passed, and visitors inside the house claimed to hear footsteps coming from the attic, and various objects, mostly toys, would move around the home on their own. The artist Gene Otto died in 1974, and his wife soon followed. The Otto house was purchased by Myrtle Reuter, who owned the doll until she donated it to the museum in 1994, where it remains today. Upon donating the doll, Myrtle Reuter insisted that Robert the doll was indeed haunted. The museum curators were skeptical, but they took the doll nonetheless it being a rare part of Key West history that dated back to the 1800s and was associated with one of the island's many famous artists. Almost immediately, things got weird at the museum. And here we come to the first-hand accounts from my anonymous friends who worked at the museum and were specifically in charge of maintaining the area and displays surrounding and including Robert the Doll himself. These friends of mine also know the people in this position today, and we're just going to leave all of their names out of it for their own privacy. The first occurrences took place late at night, when the museum motion detectors would trigger the alarm system, and the caretakers would arrive to find Robert's glass case empty. They would then have to search the rooms, and invariably they would find Robert in some other room, 
and replace him in his airtight, ultraviolet ray filtering glass case. On other occasions, they would have to remove the case to clean it because it would inexplicably become smeared with handprints on the inside. Visitors who scoffed or disrespected Robert or even took his picture without asking permission would quickly meet with misfortune, illness, or plain bad luck, and rumors spread that the only way to remove the curses was to write Robert a letter of apology. Today, Robert the Doll receives about 60 letters per month from apologists, fans, and paranormal seekers from around the world. This next segment doesn't focus on a single haunted object, but rather a collection of objects and the history of the collectors. The Warrens Occult Museum in Monroe, Connecticut is the creation of Ed and Lorraine Warren, who were lifelong paranormal investigators and the subjects of the American horror film The Conjuring. The museum is now closed, and as far as we know, all of its contents are still owned by Ed and Lorraine's daughter and her husband. In 1952, the Warrens founded the New England Society for Psychic Research. Over the years, they investigated hundreds of hauntings, demonic possessions, and paranormal cases. Along the way, they built a large collection of supposedly haunted or evil artifacts, and they stored them in the basement of their own home. Once again, what could go wrong? Ed Warren was a self-educated demonologist, author, and lecturer. Wife Lorraine was a clairvoyant and medium, and the two worked closely together. These two were the original ghost hunters, and they were one of the first teams to use scientific instruments such as thermometers, low-light cameras, and tape recorders while exploring paranormal events. They trained several other investigators in the art of demonology, including David Considine and John Zaffis, who happens to be their nephew. I mentioned Zaffis earlier, and I have heard him speak, as you may recall, if you listen to the Patreon bonus episode that we published on the main RSS feed back in January 2023, between episodes 36 and 37 and we'll look into some of John Zaffis' ideas about haunted objects here in a minute. So Ed and Lorraine started the New England Society for Psychic Research in the 50s, and they clashed a bit with the New England Skeptical Society. Societies have always been big in New England. One particular incident happened in 1997 when Steve Novella and Perry DeAngelis from the Skeptical Society interviewed the Warrens and toured their Museum of Haunted Artifacts. They wrote an article based on their experiences. Their conclusion was that the Warrens were, quote, at best, tellers of meaningless ghost stories, and at worst, dangerous frauds. But the Warrens were both deeply religious Roman Catholics and steadfast believers in the paranormal. When the Skeptical Society claimed that all of the hauntings they had investigated and found to be genuine were nothing more than predetermined conclusions, the Warrens retorted by saying that the Skeptical Society merely brought their own predeterminations into their investigation into the Warren cases and that they did so without any faith in God or any understanding of the supernatural world of ghosts, demons, and hauntings. The Warrens investigated famous hauntings such as the Amityville House, which we all know. They also investigated the Harrisville, Rhode Island home of the Perron family, said to be haunted by a witch who had lived there in the early 19th century. That story is the basis for the 2013 film, The Conjuring. That film launched an entire horror movie franchise, and part of that universe is the most famous haunted object in the Warrens collection, Annabelle the Doll. According to the Warrens, two nursing student roommates in the early 1970s claimed that their Raggedy Ann doll was possessed by the spirit of a young girl named Annabelle Higgins. 
The doll was a gift given to one of the students, Donna, for her 28th birthday from her mother. Seems like a strange present for a 28-year-old, but maybe she had one like it when she was a kid or something. In any case, both Donna and her roommate loved the doll. They sat it on the living room sofa and went about their business. But then, strange things began to occur, and I mean really strange. They would come home to find the doll in Donna's bedroom with the door closed. They found notes saying, help me, written on parchment paper, even though the girls had no parchment paper among their belongings. One of the girl's boyfriends was alone in the house when he heard rustling in the bedroom. He went to investigate and found Annabelle the doll had moved from the bed to the floor. When he picked up the doll, he was shocked to feel nails claw his chest and he looked to see bloody scratches appear from nowhere. In two days, the scars were gone without a trace. And I have to tell you that right as I was paraphrasing this story in complete silence at 10 p.m. alone last night, a coconut fell and hit the metal roof here at the Jungle Villa outpost and scared the crap out of me. So the girls enlisted the help of a psychic who told them the spirit was friendly and only wanted to be cared for. The girls in turn invited the spirit to stay in the doll and live with them, and let's just say that was a bad idea. The doll's behavior, according to the girls, continued to get worse, and they finally called in Ed and Lorraine Warren. The Warrens said the two young ladies' trouble had truly started when they began believing that the doll deserved their sympathy. The Warrens believed that there was actually a demonic force in search of a human host within Annabelle, the doll. According to their report, human spirits do not possess inanimate objects like houses or toys. They possess people. But an inhuman spirit, so a demon, can attach itself to a place or object, and this is what occurred in the Annabelle case. This spirit manipulated the doll and created the illusion of it being alive in order to get recognition. Truly, the spirit was not looking to stay attached to the doll. It was looking to possess a human host. The Warrens took the doll, telling the roommate it was being manipulated by an inhuman presence and put it on display at the family's occult museum, locked in a wooden case that's carved with the Lord's Prayer and sealed with a glass door, Annabelle remains today. Now I want to go over a few ideas from John Zaffis, godfather of the paranormal and owner of his own haunted artifact museum. John Zaffis is, as I learned while researching this episode, the nephew of Ed and Lorraine Warren and someone that I heard speak at a conference last year. He was the main focus of the Haunted Collector TV show and an all-around good guy. I'm not going to dive into any of the artifacts in John's collection, but rather explore his ideas of what may be going on in many of these haunted object cases. First of all, Zaphis always comes back to the idea that everything is energy. We know this to be true from a scientific standpoint. All things are mostly empty space, and any solidity we see is an illusion created by the incredible speeds of atoms in motion. So even the solid table is 99.99% nothing, and that's true for everything. This being the case, objects like dolls and paintings and mirrors are forms of energy as well. Because thoughts and feelings are energy also, the energetic material world can be influenced by the energies of expectation, history, deep focused feelings, and beliefs. He describes what he calls the perfect storm of a haunted object, where something that has some form of stored or collectic psychic kinetic energy comes into contact with either a person who is receptive to that energy or a place that somehow amplifies or conjures it. 
This may very well be why an object seems to be haunted in one house but loses its potency in a museum, or why some empaths can experience spirits or demons within certain objects when others see or feel nothing. Remember the story we did about the Bet Sphere? A metal ball of unknown origin that did all sorts of hijinks in the haunted house owned by the people who found the ball, but never so much as rolled an inch for J. Allen Hynek when he studied it in New Orleans. Zaffis says that one of the most powerful forces in the world is expectation. I agree. All of these haunted objects have one thing in common the human element. In the end, these aren't merely stories of haunted objects, but stories of the people who own them, who encounter them, or dismiss them. My summary. Before we summarize this topic, I want to tell you that every day I get opportunities to include pre-roll ads or other audio commercials into the Renegade Files episodes. And to be frank, there are times I wonder if my decision to never put ads in the shows was a right one. I could be making money from those ads right now, but I choose not to, and I'm sticking to that decision because ads in the middle of a show like this are annoying as hell, and I think you deserve the show without them. I also have faith that as the show grows, so will those who support me on Patreon. To be perfectly transparent, my goal is 400 patrons, that would make this a full-time job. I could do more episodes, more research, take more trips, and give you more frequent, more consistent content, and I love doing it. I'm never going to stop. Patreon works because a lot of people pitch in a small amount each, and that can make a huge difference for someone like me. I do all the work for this podcast myself. I am proud to be a part of the creator economy. I was born to do this work. Podcasts are the last remnants of free speech on the internet, and with your help, I'll keep making Renegade Files. Tap the link to Patreon in the show notes, or visit patreon.com slash renegadefiles and become an RFA agent today. Doesn't cost hardly a thing, and I'll see you in there. You can try it for free for a week. If you can afford five bucks a month and you like this show, then kick it across the internet. Cheers. So what do you think is going on here? After hearing John Zaffis speak on the subject and then doing my own research and explorations into the ideas behind haunted objects, I think we're dealing with a subject that has more than one explanation. We encounter this situation in some paranormal occurrences, but certainly not with all of them. In this case, each object has a unique backstory and differing effects on people. So it makes sense that we would arrive at varying conclusions. But even within a single object, this can be true. For example, the dark mirror. Dark mirrors are a dime a dozen, and they're kind of odd to stare into. And if you've ever had that perspective shift you can get when you gaze deeply into a crystal ball, you can get the same shift with a dark or black mirror. And that alone can cause people to see things. It's kind of the function of it. Then you put that into a traveling museum of haunted objects and let the people who are attending that sort of event hold the thing and people see stuff. As for the effects it had on the original owner, the girl's mother, it could be a similar thing going on there. Then, just as the folks who have the exhibit have said, an object like that may be collecting the vibes from everyone staring into it and expecting to see a ghost. This takes nothing away from the experiences, it's just one way to look at it. Then there's the painting, The Hands Resist Him by Bill Stoneham. I'm not sure about that one. First of all, it's a fully creepy looking painting. The images are freaky. The boy looks angry or tortured, and the girl is this black-eyed kid looking doll, and the hands groping from outside at the black window. It's a scary image. Then someone finds it in an abandoned building, hangs it in their four-year-old daughter's bedroom, and wonders why the kid has nightmares. Throw in the creepy pasta-style auction description and a viral eBay sale, and a legend is born. 
The painting definitely has a strange energy about it, and it's not a feel-good energy. It's creepy. Legitimately haunted? I don't see any reason for it to actually be possessed or haunted, but I still don't want it on my wall. The Dybbuk box is scary because all of the many people who have had the thing have had similar experiences. They all encounter very specific smells, like jasmine. They each have heard disembodied voices and come home to find their rooms tossed about. It was a box designed and created for the very purpose of containing a spirit in a Jewish ritual. Maybe it was, and for my money, it's at the top of the list for a genuinely haunted artifact. I guess that is if the stories are true. So what about the dolls? They definitely rank high on the list of haunted things. Annabelle and Robert, dolls are prime targets for haunted objects for obvious reasons. Dolls are, at a certain level, creepy. And I mean this in the true definition of the word. We've talked about it before, but the gist of it is that creepy is a feeling you get when you're unsure of the nature of an object or place, and you're unclear as to whether or not the situation is dangerous. This is different than pure fear. Fear is when you know you're in danger. Creepiness is the possibility of danger. A dark room, a glassy-eyed doll, and a wild imagination is the recipe for scaring yourself. Believe me, I know, because I am an expert at doing that. (laughs) Uh, So thank you sincerely for investigating the creepy world of haunted objects with me. Subscribe or follow the show now so together we can keep digging into the deepest covert stories, paranormal cases, and conspiracy clashes. I am glad to have you in the Renegade Files crew. The easiest way for you to share the show with friends who may like it is just send them a link to therenegadefiles.com. From there, they can find the show on their favorite podcast platform with one-click buttons that take you there. Send them therenegadefiles.com. I really appreciate it. Until we meet again, I'm your guardian of legends, Lex Gordon. Stay wild, ghost child.